Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today we're talking about the movie Gojira, also known as Godzilla, the original 1954 Japanese movie. We're going to be talking about how this movie seen by most in the West as just a fun monster movie with a guy in a rubber suit is actually a stirring tale about Japanese reactions to the World War II and the nuclear bombs. We're going to talk about why is it this movie has been seen so differently in America and uh, how we're currently trying to get a better understanding of that in a lot of parts of American society. And yes, we are going to talk about a guy in a rubber suit smashing miniature buildings. All that more after a commercial break. We have no control over. That was a person in a suit? welcome back this is matthew your host as you've already heard asking about the great work of nakajima haru the man in the suit that was paul hoppy who's joining me today paul how we doing doing pretty good yeah didn't get a ton of sleep but just enough just enough to give a note free but hopefully, you know, impassioned and, uh, you know, a, a little let's let's uh, let's talk about this movie. I liked it. No problem. No problem. This this time I actually did a lot of research. Um, and let me give a little bit of history of kind of how we decided to do this movie. First of all, you know, with the strike going on, as I've said, we wanted to do some movies that are not about things made by American Hollywood companies, the companies that are currently being struck. And so Japanese cinema was a, a great thing to take a look at. As you, if you pay attention to the Star Wars Universe podcast, you may see that Paul and I also did an episode about Japanese cinema over there, about The Hidden Fortress, a movie that's thought to have had a big influence on George Lucas in creating Star Wars. But with this one, for me, there was a further dimension in that right now there's a movie out that is talking a lot about the ethical decision-making of dropping the nuclear bomb. And the critique that's been brought about it a lot, I haven't seen it yet, but is that in a movie that's all about this horrific use of the nuclear bomb, we don't really pay any attention to the victims and their perspective in it all. And, you know, I never really knew that much about Gojira. I used to always think of it as Godzilla, except that it I thought it was a, you know, fun, silly monster movie from the 50s that had this veneer of, oh, by the way, and Godzilla was caused by nuclear bombs. Isn't that bad? And I thought, Hey, you know what? A movie that's actually about kind of what uh, that other Hollywood movie is about, but from the Japanese perspective, might be worth taking a look at. Turned out that I was very surprised, as I think a lot of Americans are, a lot of people who grow up with those kind of ideas about Godzilla, um, to find that this movie is actually a stirring and incredibly powerful and, in doing research, incredibly culturally significant moment of Japanese cinema coming to terms with you know the horrible events of Hiroshima and Nagasaki – uh, the nuclear bombing and and all that that means. That there's so much symbolism and meaning in the movie that I think a lot of people miss. And it's also just a great science fiction movie in that it uses those questions, uses that situation to ask some really hard questions about the kind of decision making that uh, uh, the uh, scientist discussed in the other movie might have gone through. So we're going to talk about that movie. We'll give you a plot summary in a second, but. The details of the plot are really not as important, I think, as the, the questions it raises. But let me just start with Paul. So what was it you liked about this movie? I mean, first of all, it's a it's a well-made movie in, you know, 1954 standards, at least, right? But, mm-hmm. like, in terms of, you know, I think the writing's good. I think the acting's good. I think production value doesn't matter that much when you have good writing and acting. Um, yep. You know, and those are those are both things that when we cover the next thing we're going to cover, I'm also going to kind of talk about and double back to and like, 
I love great production value, you know, yeah. but, um, I, you know, I don't need something to be super fancy. It's like, if you go see a play, you know, it's, it's not going to have quite the same immersive feel a lot of the time as like going to see a movie, right. Where, yeah. because it's like, you know, you're in a room with, you know, a stage and you see the lights and stuff like that. And, um, and so here I feel like, you know, sometimes it can take a little bit to kind of get in, get invested, be like, all right, this is in black and white. I need like my brain. I need like something in my brain to click to kind of accept black and white as that's the world <laughs> I'm looking at. Right. Um, right. but then for me, usually between five and 10 minutes, like I forget it's even in black and white. And like, I can think back on a movie yeah. and be like, Oh, was that? Yeah. Oh, I guess that was in black and white, you know? Um, mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll also just say like, um, I enjoy practical effects. I would yeah. rather watch someone in a suit actually stomp, you know, cardboard houses or whatever than, um, than see not that good CGI. I feel like the thing with like CGI is it, it makes a lot of things possible that weren't really previously so possible, but, um, it got really good and then some of it's sometimes very rushed now and mm -hmm. it I, I feel like it has more of a you know some some maybe the uncanny valley kind of effect but also just yeah. that feeling of like i don't know like here when i'm watching this i'm i'm not i wasn't thinking about the actual filmmaking about like you know someone in a yeah. suit stomping on buildings you know and and some of that's also thanks to editing and lighting and stuff like that right um and being in black and white can be an asset sometimes Right. When um, the same way using shadows can can be uh, a tool that helps sort of obfuscate the unreality of what we're seeing yeah. on, on screen. Um, so I just I enjoyed that. And also in terms of exploring things like uh, th these subjects, you know, I'd rather not watch a biopic like I, mm -hmm. I just I, personally, I don't like almost any of them. The only exceptions that spring to mind are like about classical composers. Then I'm like, you know, the music's just so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, you know, the fact that it's a biopic, I'm like, yeah, whatever. But the music, you know. Amadeus so, is a great movie. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and I, I even I saw a play of Amadeus, too, uh, with David Suchet as uh, nice. as Salieri. And, and it was it was great, you know, and I was like, but anyway, um, yeah, I just I enjoyed the movie. Um I appreciated things it was talking about. It did manage to like address something super directly in a way that didn't feel super contrived and preachy to me. And maybe some of that's yeah. because I'm reading subtitles and only catching a word here and there. Um, that's there's always there's always a little bit of like if I don't fully understand the language mm -hmm. being used, um, it it's almost like when part of the the you know, part of the screen is, is in shadows and it's like, right. it kind of allows the mind to kind of fill it in. And I, you know, and I usually choose to fill things in with, um, with a way that I like it better, you know, compared yeah. <laughs> to when something's in, in English or, or even Spanish at this point. And like, I understand all the words and, um, I'm like, Oh, that was, that was kind of an awkward way of saying that. Wasn't that like, I don't want to be thinking that. That's just like, I, I can't help it. But so here, I, yeah. I can't think that, you know, I'm, I can't criticize <laughs> words. It's like, yeah, sometimes I can be like, oh, they use a different word for thank you. So like, I could be like, oh, did they translate it correctly? Or are there like five different ways of saying, you know, but, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, for the most part, just like, it's an enjoyable movie. You know, I think it, it, 
can take someone who isn't watching a bunch of you know 50s movies a, a minute to get into probably but um yeah. it's a good movie about interesting stuff what, like what else do i want yeah just a couple things i want to say on what you said first of all it, it's interesting to note to us today i think the production values look quite low this was one of the most expensive movies ever made at the time it came out particularly in japanese cinema but also just in general was, um I believe it cost 750,000 yen to make, or it may have been 750,000 dollars, I don't remember, but either way, it was an incredible amount. Yeah, that, um, that <laughs> the 750,000 yen sounds like about like 7 Gs, I think. So Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, also, the other. in 1950, you know. True, of course, stuff, so of course. Forget it, forget a set of numbers. Forget the number. A lot of money. It costs a lot of money. And you're right, I think I really like the practical effects. They're a little cheesy at times. In the later movies, they get a lot cheesier, and I think they lean into that, but right. I know... At the time this came out, people ran screaming out of the theaters. Like, it was yeah. pretty revolutionary in terms of some of the things that it was able to do. And, and I appreciate also what a lot of the stuff you brought up about language and stuff like that. One thing I want to say from the beginning is I, I'm really interested in what this movie says to us today. And I think part of understanding that is also understanding the context of 1954 Japan and what it was saying at that time. Um, I'm not Japanese. Paul isn't Japanese. You know, and I want to be very aware of that in terms of making this discussion. There is some great analysis by Japanese authors that I will try and link to in the show notes. It's definitely worth checking out, some of which I read translations of, some of which I looked at. Uh, I will say that there were a couple of Japanese-Americans who have been guests on this podcast before or have been talking about being guests who have reached out to, none of which were able to make it for various reasons. But I still think there's a very worthy conversation to be had by two people who aren't in that culture talking about what it means to us today and also what it, you know, our, our best understanding of what it meant in the time. Um, and the context of it, because I think that is really important. So let me just start by giving a quick summary of the plot. Um, we start, and there's a lot of things in here that are pretty significant in as references to things, and some of them I'll mention now, some I'll mention as we go along. But we start out with a salvage vessel in the, the, the ocean south of Japan that is destroyed by what looks like a sudden light, and... Um, then is, is is very quickly destroyed. No one really understands what happened. It happens to another vessel. Uh, more are sent to, to try to figure it out. Uh, they're all destroyed. And now people are starting to freak out and wonder what's going on. And we cut to a place called Odo Island, which is a fictional island. But certainly you know, Japan's as part of an archipelago. It's, there's a ton of little islands near Japan that this is kind of made to represent. And on them, people are talking about what's going on. And one kind of, you know, grumpy old man mentions that there used to be a belief in a, a legendary monster from the sea called Gojira. Um, and so eventually um, people are trying to study this. Um, the Gojira appears and does some terrible things on the island, leaves behind some footprints. Scientists come to study it and they find that it is radioactive. And more attacks, more research. The research is being led by, and we do my best with these names, but it will not always be perfect, a paleontologist named Kyohei Yamane. And he has a daughter named Emko Yamane. And he's trying to do research. He decides that it is probably a, uh, a dinosaur or something that kind of, um, as he understands it, emerged from a period shortly after the dinosaurs. Interestingly, he talks about the dinosaurs as having lived two million years ago, which is... You know, it's just kind of interesting to know that, like, and we now know it was more like 65 million years ago, if not longer. <coughs> uh, but, you know, that it's kind of a nice reminder that the science that we now know about dinosaurs has advanced quite a lot, even just, you know, in the 75 years since 1954. 
so anyway, so the there's scenes of politicians discussing what should be done, uh, and eventually he the scientist concludes that it was probably a result of the testing of the hydrogen bomb that has happened quite recently by the Americans, although the word Americans is never spoken. Uh, there's political discussion about what to do about this. There's at least one politician who's very concerned that if they talk about this publicly, it will hurt their, quote, diplomatic relations. Again, America has never stated, but I think that's the very clear undercurrent. And the military tries to mobilize. They try to fight uh, against Gojira. They completely fail. And Gojira eventually comes to Tokyo and just lays waste to Tokyo in a way that is very emblematic of the uh, American firebombing of Tokyo. And it's shot in a way that is really heartbreaking in terms of both the, the destruction, but also then all the scenes of the aftermath. You see a mother and child about to die uh, who talk about how they're going to be where their father is. Uh, the implication being that their father died quite likely in the war, which was only nine years ago, but not explicitly stated. There's a scene of a very young child uh, and the, the kind of doctor testing him for radiation and finding that he's very radioactive. And again, it's, it, it's just, it's heartbreaking. I definitely cried watching these scenes the first time. So along the way, two of the main characters who we've been seeing are the, the girl who I mentioned, Emko, Emiko, and um, the one of the captains of the salvage ships, one of the people who's been involved in sort of learning about this from the beginning, Hedeto Ogata, and they are in love, and they're trying to figure out what to do because she has been promised from a very young age to a science, uh, as I said, she's the daughter of the paleontologist. She's been promised to uh, this scientist who's a colleague of her father named Daisuke Serizawa, um, who has lost his eye in the war. And But she doesn't really love him. She loves this other guy. They're trying to figure out how to tell him. Eventually, as it goes on, we learn that he has come up with something called the Oxygen Destroyer, which is this mega weapon, super weapon, very clearly a, a metaphor for hydrogen bombs or like the next thing that would come beyond hydrogen bombs. And it could kill Gojira, but he doesn't want to use it because then other governments will try to use it. Even if he burns his notes, he might be coerced into using it. And the two of them, um, the, the couple who are in love, go and try and talk to him and convince him not to do it, convince him to use the weapon. He at first is, is against it. But then as they learn more and more about just how much kind of all of Japan is preparing to just be destroyed, and there's this prayer that's being sung all across the nation and symbolized by hundreds of Japanese schoolgirls in Tokyo singing this very sad prayer for peace. He decides that the weapon should be used, but that he's going to burn all of his notes and pretty well foreshadowed, but uh, it's still done in a, in a very touching way. He goes down with Ogata to lay down the oxygen destroyer device to kill Gojira, but as part of it, he cuts his own line so that he can't be pulled up. He cuts his oxygen line so that not only are all of his notes destroyed, but he is killed as well. And in theory, the weapon can never be used. So Gojira is dead. But instead of being like celebration and cheers, the movie ends on this very somber note that is clearly like sadness for the doc, the scientist, but also I think sadness for Gojira himself, who is seen kind of as a you know, a helpless, you know, part of nature that was caught up in all this. And it ends with, and Paul, this might be, as you said, the part that feels a little on the nose, but I think actually really works. Uh, the older paleontologist, Yamane, saying that 
you know, if more nuclear testing is done, we're going to have more goji press. Yeah, I mean, to me, I, I was actually saying that I felt like it didn't feel on the nose, even though it like super was, you know? Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of me. Yeah. When I say that line, it right. sounds super on the nose, but yeah. it didn't feel that way. Yeah, it's, and I mean, t- I think a big part of that is like just the movie's success at getting you to to buy in to its, you know, yeah. its central conceit, its its reality, um, you know? And, and the fact that it is... I don't know, like for as unreal as it is, it, it feels very real because it is yeah. so, I don't know, it's, I don't know, just sometimes you could do this and it works and sometimes you can do it and it, it doesn't for me anyway, yeah. right? And and here it works. And yeah, you know, I think the idea is that there's possibly a bunch of, you know, beings like this deep in the trenches in the ocean, right? And I, I do believe also this movie was made, um, I mean... I do believe this movie was made, but um, it, <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, sea exploration has um, progressed a lot since then, too. Right. Yeah. In terms of like um, the ocean floor was l- less mapped than it is now. Or I, I, don't, I don't really know the state of sea exploration besides of like yeah. imploding, you know, dirigibles. Or, but anyway. Um, yeah. yeah it, there, there, go. There is still a lot we don't know. And I, I think it's worth noting the movie Pacific Rim which is a, a kaiju movie yeah. about monsters coming from the ocean. Yeah. Though in that case through like a dimensional portal, it very clearly has some references to this movie, including right. in in this movie, one of the things the military does is try to build like a huge electrified fence. Yeah. And Godzilla just smashes it right through it. And in Pacific Rim, they try to build a wall right. that the kaiju just smashed right through. And I think that was a very intentional reference. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um and I think that wall was before the other wall that it could have been a reference to. But, um, yeah. but yeah, it's, you know, the idea is that, like, you know, Gojira is not the only kaiju in the sea, kind of, right? And if, right. You, if you keep dumping nuclear bombs into the sea, like, that, that can cause harm. And, and that's, yeah. that's why Gojira is um, radioactive, right? And that's why all those yeah. kids have radio, um, radiation poisoning, like... And that, you know, that's obviously a metaphor for the difference between, like, conventional weaponry or whatever and, you know, atomic bombs um, in that the destruction isn't confined to the immediate blast. Um, right. You know, and um, yeah, and it's just, I don't know, it's it's interesting because it, it really does play as a metaphor, but then the, um, then the weapon that um Surisawa comes up with you know is also like a metaphor <laughs> for the same thing kind of right and yeah and and so i think all of that kind of ends up being like a you know a metaphor for for the arms race and for escalation and right you know you can unleash one new terror and then if the counter to that terror is to unleash a new new terror it's like where does this where does go right exactly yeah. like nowhere good i think it's really true and i think in understanding how much this is not only just like a like today we're like oh yeah i guess i can see how it's connected like it was a very powerful metaphor but especially at the time it was made i want to kind of highlight a few parts of that first of all as i said it starts with these two uh uh boats getting destroyed and where they see a flash of light you know Mm -hmm. and they hear the sound and then the boat suddenly erupts in fire and when we watch it we don't see godzilla at all and I think it's very easy to think, like, wait, was that... At first, I remember thinking, like, what we were watching was the nuclear blast that awakes uh, Gojira. Mm. 
And learning later, I learned that actually just a few months before they started making the movie, on March for on March first, nineteen fifty four, uh, the Japanese fishing me- the Japanese fishing vessel uh, Deago for Fukuyama Maru, uh, which is, translates as Lucky Dragon Number Five, had been showered with radiation from the U.S. Uh, atomic testing at Bikini Atoll, and one of those sailors had died, and so it was like very fresh in people's memory about you know Americans testing more nukes and Japanese people dying, and the, the those scenes of the ships were very evocative of that. Um, the other thing I think that really comes through is that this movie is being made. Only two years after the American occupation of Japan has ended. And so, and also very recently after the decision has been made to allow Japan to have a military again. Uh, and so the planes and the tanks and things like that that we see, uh, the planes and the artillery and stuff, is all very recently returned to Japan. Mm. Um, and, and and lastly, very much as part of this, there had been a very long history, like the the idea of free press, which we see a lot of reporters, things reporters like very bravely on a tower that Gojira is attacking, and they keep talking about Gojira right to the moment that they are killed. Um, but you know, there'd been censorship of the press first under the Japanese government, then very much under the Americans, uh, but also censorship of everyone, and there weren't things you couldn't talk about. And one of the things that I read a lot of was um, William Sutu. I think I'm pronouncing that right. One of the things that I read was a book by, I believe I'm pronouncing this right, William Tsutui, uh, author of Godzilla on My Mind, 50 Years of the King of Monsters. Uh, he's Japanese-American. He's done a lot of study on this. And he writes, Japanese creative artists, filmmakers, novelists, and so forth really couldn't talk about the atomic bombings. It was a topic that could not be discussed. And Japanese people as well were very reticent about discussing this tragedy because it was so horrible and because they felt a sense of guilt and shame about those events. But when the Japanese had their independence back, again, in uh, the, the, the ending of the American occupation, so 1952, just two years before the movie's made, when the Japanese had their independence back, as filmmakers were thinking about giant monsters, people began to think about that connection between monstrosity and the atomic bombing. And so he talks a lot, and in the book, he keeps talking about this idea that, like, this was kind of one of the first attempts to really wrestle with what had, you know, what... What did the bombing do to Japan and how did people feel about it? Because for so long, you couldn't talk about it, both because of cultural issues, but also because literally like the Americans were censoring what movies could be made, and what newspaper stories could be written. Yeah, I, had, I hadn't really I, – I was kind of wondering like when – like when – I'm not super um, up on history of like wars in general, mm-hmm. you know. And I mean I, I know when the war ended, um, you know, I know when – specific atrocities were committed which i mm-hmm. i will insist and persist on on calling them um and the the sort of general timeline but like in terms of yeah how how long after um you know the end of o- the occupation was this like um two years um you know that means people were thinking about making it before that or around then right i mean movies movies take a while to make um, although I think they were made a lot faster back then, but, um, yeah, being less than 10 years after something like yeah. that, you know, I mean, you think about like, it's been 22 years since like, you know, September 11th in the United States. And like, it's still very present in people's consciousness, I think, and in, in conversations. So, um, for, you know, 
terrorist attacks that are such larger scale and more recent, uh, I, th- I think, you know, I can only imagine how, how that would affect people. Um, but also, I, I, I think the, the point about the, um, like, the first boat is really interesting where, you know, we're in the beginning, like, you don't see Gojira, like, for a while, right? Yeah. And um, in terms of, like, the bombs, like, you see a flash of light, you see the mushroom cloud, but you don't see the bomb, Right. It's not people right. like, oh, what's that thing falling out of the sky? It's like, however, I mean, unless you're like just in the right place, I I think I don't you know, what? I don't really know. No, but I, that's my impression. Right. Is that it's right. like the vast majority of people at least weren't like necessarily looking in that direction. And um, right. and so this sort of like like what even happened, you know, um, right. sort of sense of that. No, I think you're right. I think that, you know, I know the author had interviewed a lot of people who were who were alive at the time. Uh, and a lot of those accounts have been kept, but, you know, obviously lost and lost as, as around so many years past it. But I think one of the things that becomes really most interesting is how this movie was viewed in America. And I want to talk about that a bit because I think it says something about also how powerful this movie was, which is that the movie was released in 1954 in, in Japan. Two years later, an American company bought it and wanted to release it in America, but they not only did they dub it, but they reshot large parts of it. They added in American character, actually played by a Canadian actor, um, and so that character was a much bigger role, but also they cut out all references to the atomic bomb. They cut out mm. all the sort of uh, things that would kind of implicate that the Americans were at fault in any way, or that any connections to the bombing, and this was like a big, and then this was a big part of what so Americans and by extension, I'm guessing a lot of the West knew about these movies. And to me, this is really interesting because I'll admit I'm one of those people as well. I, you know, after this movie, like I think often happens, I think Rocky is another great example, but you know, there's a lot of other examples where like people will make a movie where there's a spectacle, but it's really about like some really hard hitting drama or ethical points or whatever. And then, like, people are like, okay, but those effects were really cool. Let's just do a million sequels about the effects. And there have been, as I said, more than 30 Gojira movies, a lot of which are, maybe some of which I think have some interesting points. Definitely Shin Gojira, which uh, I think Riki and I are going to talk about at some point, definitely does. But a lot of them are just fun guys in suits, you know, crushing miniature buildings and having a lot of fun with it and big kaiju movies and stuff like that. And so, as I said, I had definitely always thought of this movie as okay, it's a little bit of the atomic bomb, but it's mostly just going to be about, you know, the effects and the coolness. And, and, and so my point being, and I'm kind of curious where, where you see this or like what you know about the movie, but to me, there's a direct connection between the the way the movie is reshaped for American audiences and and that kind of lack of knowledge of how much this really was about a commentary on this horrible thing America had done. Yeah, I mean... That's American censorship for you, right? Where it's not, it's not state sanctioned. It's not forced. It's just the, you know, let's take everything interesting about this movie, take it out and then, you know, keep the uh, more superficial aspects and repackage it and, you know, not ask people to give any thought to the actions of, you know, their country and, you know, the military of the country they live in. Um, and, you know, that's it's like you can censor things without having this like, you know, governmental censorship. Right. Although also yeah. like the, the MPAA is, is a censorship body. I'm just going to throw that out there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
Yeah, I I think I I don't I don't think I like necessarily had a um I I don't think I had the same experience as you in terms of like my perception of this movie specifically. Like I I feel like the first time I actually gave it any thought like like when the movie Godzilla came out in the US and I I think yep. there's a 90s one right 90 98, 98 yeah. yeah um I you know we, we have a friend who who was like really into kaiju and and into and into film and so like you know was like like that's when I found out that it was like Gojira you know not Godzilla yeah. and and kind of the the basic you know what the you know cuz it's like oh the original's the best cuz it does all this stuff you know so um it's sometimes these these perceptions it's like well what you know where do you hear about something right where's the first yeah. place that you're kind of asked to give something some thought um so i i would say i kind of had some of that like spoon fed instead of you know locked away in the in the liquor cabinet but like yeah i i, I don't know where i'm going with this metaphor um <laughs> <laughs> this is certainly not as seamless as well, the film I, but i can jump in just by saying yeah. further about the 1998 movie i saw that one recently it's really really bad um but <laughs> among other things one thing they thought was really interesting was in that the thing that causes gojira to awaken is french nuclear testing oh. and while granted at the time they made it 1998 the most recent nuclear tests had been done by the french yeah still that felt like a very intentional like we're gonna make this for american audiences yeah like, no the americans didn't do this wow wow yeah and and i mean it's interesting because 98 i would say was almost like sort of a nadir in recent history of like american kind of gung-ho war 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 kind of stuff you know like right. um but also maybe a sort of like let's not think about any of that because you know there was there was the the gulf war right but then after that it was like I don't think that was necessarily looked at super positively throughout the United States, you know, and and there were no really high profile military conflicts until after one. And so I think there was this period of maybe like, let's not think about America and war, even though, of course, America's always bombing somewhere or has troops on the ground here, there and everywhere. But like it, it's certainly less at that point than it was, yeah. you know, five years later. Well, and also important to note is that, as I said, this movie is made shortly after Japan has remade a military. Right. And again, I'm not going to try to go too deep into this, but, you know, Japan was utterly devastated by World War II, both the American bombings. We, we know about the nuclear bombings, obviously, but I think a lot of people don't know that even before that, there had been, you know, carpet bombings where something like 78 Japanese cities had had most of their downtowns and most of their areas completely destroyed. Um I, I think we think of the nuclear bombs as horrific war crimes, and I agree that they are. Um, and it, it's hard to compare them, but like, for example, you know, it is estimated that about 80,000 people, including radiation deaths, died in Nagasaki. Um, 100,000 people, at least, probably more, died in the firebombing of Tokyo. And I, I don't think there's any way to compare the two or to say, like, which is worse. That's not the point at all. But I think it's it, it's worth. I think it's easy to think like, oh, until those two bombings, America had never done this kind of thing. No, we had done horrific things to cities all over Japan, and one of the things. That, so I think there's, you know, there's, there's at the time a very strong like, you know, do we need a military? Do we want a military? That's a very divisive issue and the like. 
I thought it's very significant that in this movie, the original, the military is completely useless. Like, they, mm. they're, yeah, they're yeah. good people. They're trying. The Coast Guard is helping. But all the military attacks on Gojira completely fail. And it's only the scientists who can do it. Whereas in the American movie, the American military, rah-rah boys, is able eventually to destroy Godzilla. Mm. And I thought that was another very interesting, like, yeah, because um, doing some more research, um, uh, Honda, who was the um, direct the director of this movie, I couldn't find if he's connected to the Honda automobile family at all. Um, <clears throat> but he was, among other things, a Japanese war veteran. He'd been a pacifist. He didn't want to go. He got drafted. He hated the war. And um, one thing I learned was that um, when the Americans would like, you know, because all the Japanese troops overseas surrendered, and so the Americans would bring them back to Japan, they had them land and go through Hiroshima because they wanted the Japanese to see, like, just how much Japan had been defeated. I guess in this attempt to sort of, like, you know, t teach you, like, your military should never exist again, that kind of kind of thing. And it was, um, uh, again, quoting from the book by Tsutui, it had a lifelong impact on him, the horrors of what he saw, and they decided an opportunity with this movie to set an important political message. Yeah, it's, you know, this is, I mean, th this kind of, it sort of complicates what, what I would say about things in terms of, um, like, you know, you, you look at the war and like, you know, we covered Ipman, you know, which mm -hmm. is uh, a movie that takes place in the context of the atrocities committed by the Japanese military against China. And... Right. And it's, you know, I, I think it's like, there's like three things here in terms of like sort of dealing with sort of, you know, the, the results of the war, right? There's like one being in a country and maybe fighting for a military that has committed its own atrocities. Like, right. you know, that that's, that's something that you can't paper over. You can't deny that. Like horrible horrible things were done by by the japanese military and then there's you know the specific atrocities committed by the american and allied military um i i, I don't know how is it was it just the u.s military at that point i mean i know the red army was like actually probably ready to invade japan soon um yeah but... they, they actually declared war this was coincidental because Stalin had promised to declare war three months after the surrender of Germany. Yeah. But they declared war in between the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. Um, and the, the English were certainly a part of some of the fighting. Certainly English soldiers or and also Australian and Indian soldiers were very much part of a lot of the fighting. Uh, and English Air Force was very committed to the same strategy mm -hmm. of carpet right. bombing. And I, I believe it was English bombers that had done a similar thing to the city of Dresden in yeah. Germany. Yeah. Uh, and killed, you know, uh, I think like 50,000 plus people or something like that in one night. Uh, I don't believe any English bombers were actually part of these attacks on Japan um, just because they were so focused on fighting Germany and it was right. mostly the Americans there. Uh, but yeah, the, the, others, the other countries were involved in the fighting, to be sure. Right. So, yeah, and I mean, I think there's some question on how much it was coincidence in terms of the timing, right? In terms of like, I think there's an argument to be made that like Truman didn't use atomic weapons on Japan to get a reaction out of Japan. It was. Oh yeah. A, I think that's right. Yeah. I, I'm more I meant mean, that like 
it's not that that Russia saw I, the I see. Of yes. Gear. Yeah. And gotcha. all of a sudden was like, hey, let's attack. Japan. Right, 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 right. No, no, it was like it was scheduled. It was on the calendar. Yeah. Yeah. But so, yeah, there's, you know, there's the atrocities committed by the Japanese military. There's the atrocities committed by the U.S. military. And we can get more specifically into that. Um, and and then there's like losing a war. Right. And sort of what that does to a, you know, a national psyche or a, also just the the conditions of, of being occupied, you know, yeah. um, which, you know, China and Korea had had just experienced as on on the other end, uh, you know. Right. Um, and so that's, you know, that's a lot of, you know, kind of emotional baggage that I, I think different people are going to carry differently. Right. Mm-hmm. Like and it could have to do with like, what was your role in the war? You know, what was what were your views on war in the first place, you know, in yeah. general? Um, and I mean, the, the context for me of of learning about all this, like in school, I feel like in history class, I don't feel like a lot of attention was paid to any of this. There's this kind of like hand wavy. OK, this happened on this date. This happened on this date. You know, this many people, you know, were killed in um hiroshima in like august 6th and this many were killed in nagasaki and in um you know on august 9th and they don't even really tell you about tokyo and like the other japanese cities that were firebombed um or carpet bombed or you know um it's like mentioned but like it's not there's not a big discussion about it but i i I will say that i'm appreciative that in you know, when I, I went to Bank Street School for Children, this is like very alternative kind of school. And I had one teacher who was uh, she actually ran like a club called like the Asia Society or something where we like that's where I learned to make kapamaki and what kappa means. And, you know, <laughs> and like um, I I think sort of I think as a result of something she said, I read, you know, a short story that I, I don't remember the name of it. I just remember it was about this girl who had survived one of the bombings and um had um radiation poisoning radiation sickness and made like a thousand paper cranes because like you're supposed to like get a wish you know and and i think she wished for peace and then she died of radiation poisoning and yeah um this was like i think this was like the fourth or fifth time in my life that i was like just like, what's wrong with people? Like, yeah. you know, like, like, you know, the first being like when I found out, like, you know, how humans treat animals, I was like, what? Like, no, that's not okay, you know? And then, you know, growing up in the US, you learn about slavery and you learn about the Holocaust. And I feel like those are things though, and, and you know, genocide of, of native peoples. And like, those are things that I think if you're in the US, it's easy to be like, well, that was history. That's how this country started. And now, like, we can, you know, move forward because we've gotten over those things. And then later you learn, like, yeah, yeah, no, uh, maybe maybe we haven't, like, really gone all the way forward from there. But but the the reactions and just the 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 attempts to justify just the murders of, like, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of civilians, both in the, you know, in the nuclear attacks and in the, the ones that preceded those. It just, I don't know, when I hear that, I'm just like, I feel like that was kind of the the moment that I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm not American. Like, I was born here, 
but like this is my sort of like you know habitual asterisk to your we but like it like i i think there are just times when you can just hear something and being like i i i don't want to be a part of that you know yeah. and like not obviously like all these things happened like you know it was after but you know my mom was born but my dad wasn't born yet you know so it's like you know in the the we or not we or whatever it's like yeah sure of course we weren't there right but it's like just the the attempt to to justify some of these things and like not act like they're atrocities and and terrorism like that i mean because that that was the plan right the plan was terrorism i know there were factories and small fact and this and that and like sure there's details you know but for yeah. me the details don't make it actually complicated they're just details I was uh, I recently read a book, read it on audio tape, which actually is the way it's made. It's better to be read. It's called The Bomber Mafia by Malcolm Gladwell. And it's really mm. about sort of these two different schools of bombing in America and in England, one of which was precision bombing and the other which was, uh, you know, this kind of carpet bombing. And mm -hmm. part of it was that you know, there had been all these uh, great theories about how good precision bombing could be. It didn't work out. And that was part of why the move was to just hmm. indiscriminate carpet bombing like this. And there was a lot of horrible reasons for it, but it's, it is well documented that they, they called it morale bombing. And that mm -hmm. part of the idea was that, like, you had to destroy the people and destroy their will to fight. And uh, a lot of that is also wrapped up with it. I think a lot of Orientalist and kind of racist ideas about how oh, Japanese just people think differently and, like, they're never going to surrender and this kind of thing. Um, and I think, and I think there are some, there, there are Japanese scholars who've written more on the Japanese perspective on it that are, that are worth checking out that again, I can't, I can't comment on, but I definitely think you're right that there is, we're, we're getting way into a, a, a tangent here, but I guess it's not even a tangent because it's very related to the question of this. And, and I, I can, I'm okay saying the word Oppenheimer, you know, that the whole <laughs> Right, right, right. That was a real person who lived and were allowed to talk about. Yes. Um, and, and mention the movie because I don't think this is us promoting it. Sure. Oh, was there a movie? Again, I haven't seen it. It might be great. I don't know. But I, I think to me it was really telling that that movie that's all about this decision to use this weapon or not does involve the, the people who it was used on. Yeah. And that's why I thought this movie was so striking is because the exact opposite. Well, so, it doesn't yeah, like, show a lot of Gojira, you know, suffering mm -hmm. at the hands of the oxygen destroyer. But anyway. Right. Well, let's get to that a little bit. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think there is something to be said there. Sure. Um, what I yeah, I think the because what I was always taught was yes, the use of the nuclear bomb was terrible and horrific, but every other option was worse. That it would have caused far more civilian deaths and American soldier deaths if we had invaded, and, and you know all these kind of justifications that are used that I think as we've looked at it more and more and understood the rationality. To, kind of don't make any sense anymore. Um, but to me, it's really interesting seeing how the movie is really wrestling with that because as you said, like it shows all these different perspectives. You know, I think the movie is clearly trying to say like, it has clear things to say about nuclear weapons, but I think it is very ambivalent about what should the Japanese reaction to this all be. Mm. And that, you know, like there's one at a lot of points where a lot of people are super scared or doing everything they can to react. There's one character who just says, you know, evacuate again, I've had enough. And I think right. that's a clear reference to the multiple times people, and this, you know, in yeah. London and in many cities that were attacked by the Germans and the Japanese, but then also many cities that were attacked by the English and the Americans and others, you know, they had just night after night go to these bomb shelters, go yeah. to subway stations, try and hide yeah. from the bombing. Yeah, and 
I think you just hit on why it works for me is that, you know, they, they don't give you an answer. They don't tell you how to feel about it. They yeah. just present it, you know, and, and for me, that's always what's going to work best. And it's, it's, there are characters who have viewpoints and express those viewpoints. And so you can see almost like a, a, a like a buffet of reactions that you can either choose from or you can yeah. empathize with. And hopefully if you have one reaction, you can empathize with someone else's reaction and understand like, look, I don't have to feel the way you feel about this. You don't have to feel the way I feel about this. And that, that's okay. You know, yeah. in terms of like, and by this, I mean, like if you are Japanese in Japan at the time and this has happened, right. And it's yeah. like, you, you get to feel how you feel. And I mean, you know, the, the movie's not like trying to say that in like really um, uh, explicit terms, but it's letting you do that. It's not, you know, I, I don't feel like at the end there's a, oh, what Serizawa did was like definitely the right thing to do. It was like he made that choice and, you know, it was I mean, maybe there's a feeling that it's like, yeah, if you don't do something about Kuchira, like it's just going to keep stomping all your cities. And like, maybe that's true. Yeah. You know, but like. I, I don't feel like it's like this is the only way everybody has to agree. Like it's like this is what we're doing. This is what we did. You know, Daisuke decided I can't survive, or they might convince me to. You know, it's basically like the ego of a scientist is such that upon making <laughs> such a discovery, and then other people knowing about that discovery, like how can one resist the urge to tell everyone all about? how brilliant they are basically right and here he's like no i'm going to take that secret to my watery grave um yeah. and i did think that was like super telegraphed i was like as soon as you like and scientists can be convinced i'm like oh no he's gonna he's gonna pull a yeah. uh what was that character you played i don't know uh <laughs> yeah he definitely was i think that was made very clear yeah um there's a couple things in what you talked about i want to say first i love what you said about how like it doesn't really give answers to these questions. I, I think, and again, especially from what I've read about the cultural significance of the movie in Japan, what it really did was not only did it not give answers, but it was kind of one of the first times that it gave permission to ask the questions and mm. to talk about it, you know, and right. it started this conversation. And, and, and again, this is me going on research of others, but I think both about like what had happened to them and also their role in like, you know, what had Japan done? Um, and one thing I'll say that, uh, and this is this is kind of maybe another topic for another time, but I do take a very different perspective to being American than you do, mm -hmm. in that uh, I think I am equally as horrified by a lot of the things that the Americans have done. Um, I, I think for me, I'm not able to say, so that's something they did. They're not, because I'm not an American. To me, I get all the benefits of being American uh, in terms of, you know, all that that means. Um uh, my tax dollars do go to support America. It is tax dollars given under coercion of violence, as you pointed out to me. Um, but because for me, the way it matters is the reason it, it's the same reason why I talk about like I am Christian, even though I'm horrified by what so many Christians do in the name of Christianity. Because if I just say, oh, those aren't real Christians, then I don't have a responsibility for it. Right. But to me, by by claiming myself as an American and naming that, A, it's a way of saying like we're still here. Um, but also it's a way of saying like, it, it's my responsibility to ma help make my country stop doing these things because I am part of it and I can't just say I'm not, um, 
So I mean, just, just to give a counterpoint, like, like I said. Sure, sure. That's to give your, your perspective and your own feelings, which, yeah. And, and and all I'm saying is, but I think that's, to me, I think that's a part of what's happening in this movie as well, is it's mm-hmm. also, like, the, one of the I was really struck by is that there, there was a real sense of shame um, mm-hmm. and, and debate about, is that about or shame for starting the war, uh, or even if that was believed that, you know, who was responsible for starting the war, shame that we lost the war, that Japan lost the war, or surrendered, whatever it was. Um, you know, and I think that, again, there's so much scholarship on that that I can't, that I can't summarize by any means, but just the way that this movie was able to open all those questions and, and give people in Japan and, and later in America and all over the world the chance to really wrestle with them, I think is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's go to kind of like what I think are two of the more interesting, like specific ethical questions in the movie. And first, I think, because you mentioned um, uh, Gojira's own suffering at the end of the movie. What, what was your take on Gojira as a character? I felt like... You know, you didn't get any sense of, like, Kojira's, like, motivation or, like, you know, and that's fine because, like, Mm -hmm. you know, doesn't speak Japanese, so it was hard for the characters to have a conversation, (laughs) right? Um, But I I did appreciate that, um, you know, Dr. Yamane was like, no, we we should study Kojira's, like, ability to resist radiation i'm not quite sure how he'd like intended to do that but like the idea of like no you see something you don't understand it doesn't mean you just go and kill it right right and it also it feels to me like they didn't really i feel like uh there are maybe some more creative ways of being like okay can we draw this thing's attention away from where you know where he's going like can we create some sort of power source that will make him like go over here um back into the ocean like why is gojira here and like you know as opposed to just like kill 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 i will say like when it comes to killing animals if they are currently trying to kill you i kind of like i'll i'll respect that as a carve out of like if you can't come up with an idea of like how to non-violently or non-lethally stop them from killing you like sure okay self-defense right you know so you know that, that's it's a little different than like you know um oh there's you know this creature in the sea we're gonna go and kill it because we're afraid of what it might do it's like no it, it right it just leveled tokyo you know um which was just rebuilt you know yeah. like <laughs> It's like, come on. <laughs> um, and, and I think it's really telling that Gojira is not presented as malevolent or evil right. or like sadistic. Um, this is a version that a lot of people may not get, but like imagine the gathering terms. There, these different colors represent like different ideas. And green is the color of nature, where yeah. nature doesn't have like, it's not evil, it's not, but it, it just is. It's just, an, it's animals. Yeah. And I think Gojira is very much presented as that, that he is, he's an animal and he does present a threat. And so there's a certain self-defense aspect, but there's the like, to me, the fact that the movie feels so tragic at the end and then we get this last beautiful shot of like the ocean with the light of the sun on it, very evocative of like when Gojira first emerged, I, I at least got the sense that the movie was saying like, it is tragic that the scientist had to die, but it's also really tragic that like, 
we got to a place because through our human malfeasance of nuclear weapon testing, we awakened Gojira. Yeah. And then he, you know, was raised and fought back and we had to then kill him. Right. Uh, or kill it. Or yeah, or chose to. Uh, it, yeah. It, it's interesting I, that Gojira is gendered as male. Even in later movies where uh, Gojira lays eggs. Right. Um, oh. Yeah, I was kind of wondering about that. I was like, and I don't like saying it or thing or whatever, but I'm also like, I'm like, I don't feel like gendering Gojira because like, yeah. I'm like, I, I feel like if there was a clear biological setup that that would be very large and on screen. So, you know, <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Censorship yeah. still was a thing, though. It's probably a good thing. Right, right, right. See I don't know. I'm sure that's a class of, uh, you know. There's a lot of fan fiction that will definitely tell you that. That's all you need to know. <laughs> or, or even animation. Um, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. But yeah, I, I definitely got that sense of like, um, yeah, that, that there was a real tragedy here that Gojira had to die. Yeah. And, you know, and it's it's like blended with sort of undercut, sort of like um, with with uh, Saritawa's, you know, death right and but it, it does feel like the whole thing is a a solemn event which feels you know more appropriate to something like this than like people cheering and maybe there are people cheering also at some point i'm not sure but uh i i i i can't i watched the movie one time and it was like a week yeah. or two ago but i, I watched it again this morning i think oh, there's cool. a couple there's some cheering when they think they've defeated him with the military right but right. at the end it's all the people on the boat and then everyone else because uh, it just ends with them on the boat yeah back yeah they don't have a bunch of other and then you know and then um yamane says like you know if if we keep if the right. uf us keeps you know dropping bombs on um, you know, bikini atoll like things are. Uh, uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna get more of these, right? Like, because it, it wasn't like the bomb created Gojira. Like the bomb awakened Gojira and kind of kind of gave Gojira like superpowers or you know yeah. radioactivity. Yeah, I think it's really accurate, and I think one of the things that's most interesting about Gojira is how in later movies he becomes the savior of Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, that a lot of the movies later, especially the Gojira verse, you know, whatever other monster, Gojira is the one saving Japan from these big monsters. Right, and, right. And often stepping on some buildings along the way. Yeah, well, what are going to do? And, and at some point, I think very recently, Gojira has been declared an official cultural ambassador for the for Japan mm -hmm. um, by the Japanese government. And I think there's a... Uh, I didn't get a chance to dive into these as much as I wanted to, but there's a lot of really interesting scholarship on sort of how is it that Gojira went from this monster that attacks Japan to becoming like a, a, a symbol of Japan, something Japanese really relate to. And I think the the both dangerousness and the victimhood is really kind of a part of that. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So yeah. let's go to the other... Oh, sure. go ahead. oh I was just going to ask, like, do you know whether future movies are sequels and there's like new... You know, Gojiras, or like, or or are they sort of like reboots where it's like, okay, how about in this one, you know, Gojira doesn't get killed and and like not sure there's a whole bunch and it's probably complicated is is certainly an acceptable answer to me. That that's definitely a question that kaiju experts get into a lot of debate about. Okay, my understanding is that the movies put out by the Toho Studios, which mm -hmm. is the studios of movie. Are, are kind of in some ways the first, you know, or at least one of the first connected cinematic universes. Right. And that 
Um, Godzilla does appear again later, and that I, I think that they said that, like, yes, this is supposed to be in the same continuity. As much as that were, I mean, it, it, at a time when you went to see a movie once and then really didn't have a way to see it again and again on TV or VHS or DVD or anything like that, you know, it, the idea of continuity is much because people are thinking about, like, oh, yeah, that movie I saw 10 years ago or whatever. Yeah. But they're def a lot of those movies build on each other. And I think there were some statements that it was a new Gojira that emerged for later movies. Uh, and certainly that, like, you know, there'd be a movie that introduced Mothra and then Gojira and Mothra would together fight uh, this three-headed monster from outer space. And, you know, that there right. were all these sort of things. And um, eventually Gojira gets a son who I haven't seen yet, but the animation looks utterly, like, ridiculously ugly cute in a way that I absolutely love. <laughs> um, so I think that's going to be a fun thing to check out. Um, but yeah, they are kind of all connected in that way. Uh, or at least a, lot, a lot of them are, but but I think not in, like, you don't have people going on the internet being like, oh, but remember at minute 57 in the first Gojira movie, this happened. And that doesn't fit with this other thing. I think it's, it's more kind of like the continuity of comic books. Like, they're all kind of the same, but they're Got not it. trying to have the exact same stuff. Right. Um, it's, it's sort of like pre- uh toxic canonicity <laughs> to yeah. borrow something from a previous uh, episode we've done where yeah i'm yeah, like right. i i like you said something i'm i'm sorry tangent land but you said something when we appeared on hype is my superpower which i say appeared because it was recorded like a month or two ago but uh -huh. it's probably not been released yet i don't know <laughs> but there's going to be an episode that we're on um talking about something i don't even remember what we talked about but i'm sure it was fun um but you, you mentioned how, like, you know, in the Bible, there's, like, two stories that, like, they say one thing and then the next thing says something different. And it's just, yeah. like, deal with it, you know? And, like, yeah. the idea that, like, these are part of the same universe, but, like, they're not, they don't have to be, um, not everything, they, they don't have to be completely consistent, right? Because that's, like, not yeah. the point of the stories. And to me, like, I, I kind of, I wouldn't mind a Star Wars where, like... It's not like, yeah, this is the one true thing that happened. You know, it's like, yeah. no, this is, here's a story. Here's another story. You know, they, they complement each other, but they don't necessarily have to correspond perfectly. Um, and so I appreciate that if that's in, in these movies as well. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about what's probably the biggest ethical question in the movie, which is Serizawa, the scientist, um, his decision event, his, his at first refusal to use the oxygen destroyer machine yeah. and then his decision to use it, but to kill himself and, and destroy those notes in the process. Uh, what did you think of that as, as how the movie played out at the end? Uh, I thought it was, you know, it's interesting because it's like, I think a lot of people like to, you know, kind of blame the scientists and be like, oh, if you didn't do these things, we wouldn't have these weapons, right? And like, that's true in the same way, like, if you say to soldiers, well, if you didn't fight, we wouldn't have wars. It's right. true, but it's like, it would have to be collective action, you know? Yeah. And I feel like science is eventually going to present all the ways of killing. Cause mm -hmm. you know, as you increase your understanding of reality, you know, you find more and more ways uh, that aspects of that reality can be, you know, turned into death basically. And right. so I think the idea of like, well, okay, I'm going to use this thing this one time and then I'm going to destroy my notes and myself 
and nobody's going to be able to figure out how it worked, I think is naive. You know, I think it's a, it's a heroic thought to say, I'm going to sacrifice myself so that nobody uses this for, for ill. But right. I, but someone's going to, someone else is going to figure it out. They're going to be like, oh, you yeah. called it the ox. Like if I, if that were my plan, I'd be like, I'm not telling you what this thing's called. I'm not telling you it's the oxygen destroyer. Then you're going to go thinking, oh, how can I destroy oxygen? Like, I'm not yeah. even going to mention that part, you know, be like, it's the Gojira destroyer. Uh, it's proprietary and uh -huh. I'm giving you none of the details. I might kill a few fish, too. Um, and, and, you know, that Gojira was like the military target, but they killed a lot of fish, too. I'm just going to I'm just going to put this out there. But like, yeah. you know, and that's like a metaphor that I think maybe only a small number of people are really going to feel, but like, you know, or maybe not, maybe it was very deliberate. I'm not sure. Um, I think it was, I think though, a little bit from an animal rights perspective, more so though, I think because at that time, you know, fish, wa yeah. fish was and is a huge part of the Japanese diet. Sure. Uh, and we were coming, you know, it was only fairly recently that there had been like, you know, huge food sorted food shortages because of the war. Right. But also, <laughs> I think this is less so the case today, but still the case today, but struggling time the movie's made, a huge part of the economy. Yeah. And they specifically yeah. say that, like, even when Gojira is just killing all the fish yeah, and, and stopping all the fishing boats, it's hurting the economy. So yeah, I think yeah. if there's, like, one part okay. of, oh, no, the animals, and one part of, like, oh, no, all of us who depend on the animals. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like... Uh, the, the phrase stopgap is coming to mind, but that's not quite what I mean. But like basically, yeah. a, you know, a kicking the can down the road, being like, OK, humans, somebody's going to figure this out, but it's not going to be directly because of me. Right. It's right. not they're not going to find my work. They're going to have to start over from scratch. Someone else is going to have to have, you know, the kind of light bulb moment moment. And again, that's why I, th I think probably don't mention the name, you know, <laughs> but like. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's both, I think, admirable and naive, you know, and, and that's not yeah. to say like, if we draw a parallel like that, you know, the scientists who worked on the, you know, the Manhattan project and then, and other nuclear projects throughout the world, um, that's not to say like, oh, well, if they didn't do it, someone else did. So or someone else would. So like, they don't have any culpability, you know, right. I'm not saying that I'm not, I'm not saying it as a. Um, well, you're off the hook because someone else would have done it anyway. Just, right. you know, I think it is worth understanding, like, yeah, you did this. I I do hold at a higher level of responsibility, you know, the people who, who chose to, you know, metaphorically pull the trigger on it, right? Either uh, signing off on the program or saying, yeah, let's, yeah, let's blow up a couple cities, you know? I mean, yeah. you know, Harry S. Truman, I think, gets a little gets off easy, you know, and, and people who flew the bombers, although like, I don't know how much they knew about what was going to happen. And they're just like, yeah, we're just, we're just dropping a bomb. I don't know. Um, which I think actually was dangerous for them too. Right. Because of the radiation, not like, Oh, poor them, but just like, you know, yeah. the specifics of it. But yeah, it's like, you know, it's like, yeah, you're responsible. It's probably would have happened anyway, eventually. Yeah. Right. But you're still responsible. So. In a lot of ways, this is going to be a weird connection, but follow me. I think it makes sense. It's part of why I think what Galen Erso does in Rogue One <laughs> is the so same important. Thing. Because I think he's placed in that similar situation where, you know, the Empire thinks 
he's the only scientist who can do this. He has to come back. Right. And I think you can argue, well, he should have just been willing to die. He should have been willing to let his family die because otherwise he constructs this thing that literally destroyed an entire planet, could have destroyed so many more. But his argument is kind of the exact reversal of the ego argument. His is like, no, I'm... I am really good, but if they kill me, they'll find someone else to do this. And right. So it's going to be made. I can at least make it with this trapdoor safety thing. There's a lot more to that discussion. I think we can talk about it at another time. Yeah. But <coughs> I, I agree. I think there's a little hubris there. I think it's, you know, it, like it's in your note, soon after America first dropped the first nuclear bomb, a number of other countries within 10 years, Soviet Union first and England and France, uh, and eventually China figured out how to do it. And I think part of it is they had to do their own research beforehand, certainly. But also the extent to which once one person has shown that it can be done, maybe you steal their notes. And that's, you know, the whole thing with the, all sorts of debates about that with the Soviet Union. But also just like it's a lot easier to decide to put huge amounts of money into a research project if someone's already shown that it works. Right. You know, yeah. and I think that's, yeah, like like you said, a lot of other places might be like, Okay, well, maybe we shouldn't use this wet. Maybe why would I even try to research an oxygen destroyer? That's a right. wait. It works. Yeah, yeah exactly. Money into it. Yeah, it's it's proof um, of concept. Yeah, and, and I think I'm with you there. And I think I think the movie's intentionally very. Um, it, it is intentionally very obtuse about how do you feel about this because, and I think that very plaintive prayer by the Japanese girls is is very intentional that they're trying to set up the literal existential threat that, you know, this is, this, you know, it's easy, as you said, to talk about the like, well, should we build this weapon for a threat that might happen in five years? People are dying every day right now because of Gojiba. The, the country is at risk. The world is at risk. Mm -hmm. And to me, what's interesting, and I don't know if this is just my American lens seeing this or if this was intentional by the filmmaker, I feel like they set up the same situation that the Americans claim as their justification. Because that's the American claim as well, is that it was a horrible thing to do, but there was literally this was literally the best way to end the war, because any other way would have caused so much more death and so much more chaos. Um, and we can question that today, but I, I think that it's interesting that that's a similar question that this movie sets up of, is it, can we use this terrible weapon, knowing that... Because I, I think in the end... <sighs> I think I'm on team. You use the weapon, like, you know. I I hate it. I I and I agree with you. I think it's going to lead to more terrible things. And that's kind of the point at the end is that the statement of that like we have to all decide to stop. I mean by that use the weapon on Gojira, not use the weapon on on Japan. Excellent um, clarification. Yes, thank you. I saw your face. I was like, yeah, being very clear here. I was like, um, I think that's what you mean, but like we probably want to make right. sure. Yeah, good, good, good. Right. Um. Because, like I said, I, I think in the self-defense aspect of, of doing it, it, it has what has to be done. But I think that's the statement at the end where he's saying, like, yes, we had to use this weapon because of this thing that's created by a weapon. But even just destroying the notes and destroying the scientist isn't enough. We have to all agree to stop trying to figure these things out. We have to all agree to stop the spirit testing. Yeah, I think I think it is a super deliberate parallel there. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I, it was one of the things that felt like this really could have felt too on the nose, but somehow it works, you know? And, um, yeah, I do think it's interesting that this movie and 
Hidden Fortress had like a song because what what you're describing as a prayer is delivered in the form of a, a song, right? It's yeah. these children yeah. singing, and that this song sways this character who had not agreed to help the protagonist, but then decided to help the protagonist. And like, I'm just like, oh, this this is interesting. This is like very yeah. very similar, like just like the same point in the movie, and um, which also I think was. Um, the Hidden Fortress, I think, also was done by Toho Studios, but um, and then is why uh, Kurosawa went and made his own production company after that because um, yeah. they're like, you film too I, slow. And <laughs> I, I know that Kurosawa and Honda were friends; they both worked at the studio together. Yeah, and then because Kurosawa uh, Honda was drafted, but Kurosawa was not. Mm. Honda was kind of mad that he came back from the war, and and the Kurosawa had kind of established himself already as a film. Oh, right, 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 right. And, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, so so it's like, I I do think they are deliberately, you know, setting up that parallel and then allowing the viewer the space to to have their own feelings about it, and I appreciate that. I just always appreciate that in a. You know, I, I, it's fine for something to like mostly have a perspective, you know, but I feel yeah. like I think it's way more powerful instead of being like super preachy constantly to basically present something and then just like give give the viewer space. I think when people are really going to have moments where they have this realization of like, oh, this this isn't OK or like this is, you know, I. I should be doing this or like, oh, that's how things are. I don't think it's usually from someone giving a monologue. I don't think it's usually yeah. from a speech, right? I think those are things to kind of like rally people who are already on your side, right? Like the the preaching to the choir metaphorically. But I think, right. I think setting up questions, I think film is a great medium for that where, you yeah. know, you, you give people some ideas, you present people with some ideas and then, then you, let them feel what they need to feel and let them think what they need to think. And I think just in general, uh, you're a lot more likely to actually convert people to your point of view than if you're just, you know, malleting them over the head with something. Yeah. And I think this I film agree. does a great job of that. So there's one piece of listener feedback I want to get to. And then in the uh, Patreon section, we're going to talk about one last part of this movie and, how it plays in other movies, The Love Triangle, which I know me and Paul have some thoughts on. But first, Paul, let me just give you a chance. Any last things you want to say about this movie? Not so much about the movie, but just... Um, I don't know. I, I still... Like, I look up things about, you know, American opinion on things like Hiroshima and, like, Nagasaki. Like, the you know, those bombings. And, I mean, it would be interesting to see... A polling of how many people even have any idea of you know the the conventional bombings that took place before that but yeah um and just seeing the amount of support that still exists you know is um it's it's just like deeply disturbing to me and like even just like thinking about or talking about these things like it like i don't know i mean i you know, didn't break down, but it was like, I found it difficult to speak earlier, you know, talking about like yeah. the first time that, that I, I heard about these atrocities, which I, I just really want to underscore. Like, I feel like if you refuse to recognize them for the atrocities that they were, and 
if you think they're like really morally ambiguous or even justified, like I just, I just don't think that's being realistic. Like that's how it's sold a lot of the time, right? Like I just think that's drinking the Kool Aid. Like I think that's giant buying a giant pile of feces that post-war America has sold to you. And I just, I, I don't know. I, I, I think people should question how they acquired such a ridiculous viewpoint and like why they remain so attached to it. And, you know, it, it doesn't mean like you have to like think that things were necessarily simple because right. you know, they, they weren't necessarily simple, but it's like, I don't know. You just don't do this. Like, it's just not okay. And that's, yeah, and to, no, <clears throat> that's all I have to say. To me, to me, there's two things there. One is I'm really glad you brought the point about the censorship because you know, I think that what happened to this movie and the story when it got to America is really emblematic of the ways we, you know, don't want to think about that. And so we took this piece of, of media from a country we've done these horrible things to and then just took out all the parts of the horrible things and made it just a fun movie about, you know, a guy in a rubber suit smashing a lot of buildings. And but, but I wanted to point out, by the way, I mentioned the name of the, that, the actor before, Nakajima Haru. He's wearing a 200-pound suit. Oh, wow. So let's let's tip our hat to that. Like, if you ever think, like, oh, wow, he looks so stupid. He's moving so bulky. He's wearing 200 pounds of rubber. That's, um, that's rough. And this is before, like, cooling systems and you yeah. know, special effects stuff. Like, yeah. that's... And know. as someone who once wore a boat, I imagine some yes. perspective yes. on, you know... I did wear a 40-pound boat for a... a a uh, summer job once that will uh, has faded into memory. So thank you for bringing back that trauma. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I, I think that's really significant of you know because the movie, like I said, we said, it's pretty, like at one point they specifically met one of her dimensions that she had just escaped Nagasaki and uh, now she's ten years later, nine years later, in danger of this bomb and things like that. Um, and I think it's really important to look at that to look at like why is we're taught the things that we are like, and and this is kind of get leads to the second point. I think it's really important, the way you phrased it, that we acknowledge these multiple truths that Japan committed atrocities in the war, we created, committed atrocities in the war. And you don't have to say, well, one of them is worse than the other. You don't have to say that one of them justifies the other. Um, they're both true. And for me, the connection there is that I had certainly learned quite a lot about the atrocities that Japan had committed during the war. But I learned about the atrocities Japan committed to white people. Mm. Uh, the Bataan Death March, which is often talked about, where American prisoners of war in the Philippines were horribly treated. Uh, similar things happened to British troops in uh, Singapore and Hong Kong and other places like that. But the, you know, the, the just utter destruction that was done to the uh, Chinese city of Nanking, Nanking never was talked about. You know, the, the horrific atrocities that were committed to the Chinese people, to the Korean people, um, you pointed out that actually a huge number of Koreans died in the bombing of Nagasaki. Yeah, thousands. Korean immigrants to Japan lived. Well, um, well, that, just, just a point of order. Not immigrants, um, conscripted laborers, like slaves. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. this wasn't like people who were like, I'm going to move from Korea to Japan because that seems like a nice thing to do. You know, okay. this was... Which I think makes it a lot worse, even. Not that it would yeah, be I mean, okay, but like... 
during times of empire, people in like the outer colonies often move to the main area yeah, because yeah. there is a shift of resources and jobs, mm -hmm. and that's really horrific. But you're right, and that's what I thought it was. But you're right, that is uh, a whole other magnitude of terrible. Um, and yeah, I think that that's what this movie is is great for. Is like not it's not trying to say oh one side is justified, one is not. It's trying to say look that that, that all of this is terrible, and how do we break out of uh, you know, that's not, like, the nuclear bombs are horrible and bad, but it's not like all of warfare before the nuclear bombs was great, you know? Right. That, that it's all bad and it all needs to end. Absolutely. So, all right, well, thank you for a great discussion. Um, listeners, of course, we want to know what you think. Uh, have, you, have you seen the original? Are you now interested in seeing the original now? Um, you know, what did you think about Gojira and the Godzilla movies and all that? Um, love to hear from you. Um, uh, whatever your perspective is, definitely write in. You can find all the ways to contact us on the The Ethical Panda website. Uh, and I'll get to that more in a second. But first, I just want to give us a quick piece of feedback. Uh, a lot of the feedback we've been getting that I want to go through is about stuff that Paul hasn't seen yet, so I don't want to spoil Paul. But this one piece of feedback is something that Paul and I talked about that Paul hasn't seen, but he's wanting to come on a podcast and talk about it. Uh, and it comes from New Jersey Jedi. Uh, I'm going to call you NJJ. I hope that's okay. Just listen to you talking about Animal Rights and Guardians 3. Great episode, and it left me wondering. Paul, parentheses, and Matthew, but especially Paul, if you could create a superhero movie that was about animal rights, the way others have been about racism or sexism, etc., what would it be like? First of all, that's a great question, and thank you for the question. Um, second of all, as chance would have it, I actually watched Guardians of the Galaxy 3 last night. Oh, okay. um, and and have a couple things I want to say about that, but I'll circle back to that. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I come up with a lot of story ideas, but I really haven't come up with any story ideas in terms of like, really in terms of animal rights, you know? Um, okay. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to give you my supervillain plan. <clears throat> so <laughs> there's this, I, 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 you know, I could know the details of it, but it's actually not really relevant to my interests. There's some disease that makes people allergic to eating meat. To any people listening to this podcast from governmental agencies, this is purely a hypothetical discussion that, as TikTok would tell me to say, is for education. No, it's for entertainment purposes. For entertainment purposes only. Yeah. So there's this thing that literally makes people allergic to eating meat. And I believe it's delivered by like ticks or something, which actually complicates the plan because I don't really want to use ticks in my distribution method. But if I were to <clears throat> write a supervillain, I would have their plan. They, basically, they would be an animal rights activist who was decided they were going to spread this to all of the people. And they would probably be successful and I would probably have a hero who was trying to stop them and then change their mind. That's, there's my, there's my story. So not even the sort of um, Black Panther, the villain has some good ideas, but goes too far, at least for us, you know, right. audiences, yeah, yeah, yeah. so therefore has to be stopped. But yeah. just flat out, like, the villain wins and the hero, we get to the end where the, the villain's about to push the button and the hero could stop them, but the hero's like... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, go, go for it. Yeah. 
<laughs> have your moment. Um, yeah. And I mean, you know, the, the, the details obviously, you know, need to work out. Um, the challenge for me is, is a lot of like what we were just talking about, about, you know, um, having a message that you want to share or something you want to encourage people to think about and finding a way to do it. That doesn't feel too on the nose, right? Like that doesn't, doesn't feel like you're not telling a story. Like you're just telling someone what to do. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not big on telling people what to do. I mean, I'm happy to tell people, Oh, I think that's an awful thing to do, you know, but not like you should do this. You should not do this. You should, you know, and like, um, so yeah, I think finding a way to actually present that in an organic storytelling, um, you know, telling a great story while having stuff like that going on, I think is right. just so much more effective than just being like, okay, this is my message. How am I going to distribute it? You know, like, and so like when you asked the question, my first thought was like, oh, I don't even know. And I was like, oh, wait. I came up with supervillain plan <laughs> for a totally not me supervillain to do this thing. And then like, oh, what if there's a hero who's trying to stop them and maybe they actually change their mind, you know? Um, right. You know, maybe they don't, but you know, it. you, you got to make the characters first and then let the characters tell you what they want to do. It's kind of my, right. my philosophy. But, you know, you make enough characters with an, enough interesting perspectives. And I think, um, yeah, because the other thing is like, I mean, am I going to have a superhero who basically just goes around and liberates animals? And then, um, I mean, cause that's a thing like people do that and they get sent to prison for like terrorism for like, te like there's people doing like 10 years or something for like kidnapping in quotes, like, or quote unquote, stealing two pigs who like, weren't gonna even be like, who were of no financial value to the, the company because right. they've, they've got such powerful lobbies, you know? I mean, like, you know, what would I want to write? I'd want to write some like Dexter thing where like someone just goes around and kills all these people, but it's like, that's not actually going to change anything, you know? So right. like, that's, that's not what I'd write. Probably. I don't know. It's a good question <laughs> yeah. to be well, continued. Yeah. I mean, and I do like the way that you frame it. Um, because if that, you know, allergy got to all of humanity, like, I'm someone who eats meat. I eat significantly less meat than I used to when I eat meat from, I, I've tried to divorce myself entirely from the factory farming system and focus on things that are you know, more ethical and more, more caring to the quality of life of the animals and the like. And that's entirely because of my friendship with you. Um, and, and, I mean, and that causing me to learn more about those things and, and become educated about factory farming industry and things like that. And so on the one hand, I can say you're good at convincing people. You know, we've also been friends for 25 years and I just mostly made these changes about four or five years ago. So, you know, a policy of everyone take 21 years to change one person's <laughs> opinion is not the most efficient thing. But I was appreciate that like you have never, you know, we have maintained a friendship while I am engaging in something that you find, you know, very against your morals. And to me, I do agree that that kind of attitude of, of the try to persuade when you can. But even then, I'm like, because honestly, I think there, there's some things where, like, I'm not as forgiving as you are, and I do cut people out of my life for that, that kind of a thing. But I also understand where you're coming from with it. But my point being that I think, like, something like that allergy thing, no one is actually harmed. Like, I enjoy meat, and if I couldn't enjoy that anymore, would that reduce my quality of life in some regards 
Yeah. Would it probably improve my quality of life in terms of my health? Yeah. Would I probably within a year just get so used to finding ways to enjoy plant-based food that I would stop caring about it? Almost assuredly, yes. Um, and, and yeah, so I think it's a very interesting sort of take on it, as well as the idea of, like, I like that you didn't actually answer the question about the hero. You sort of more went for the villain, you know, because I think the Harley Quinn animated show, uh, I think is doing something really fascinating from a similar perspective, because it's really about saying, like, they're not giving believable, relatable villains, but still have a hero who eventually has to stop them. It's straight up just a show about villains. And they do horrible things. They kill people left and right. But, uh, and sometimes it's because they have a very righteous cause. And sometimes it's because, you know, they cut in line when they're trying to get a sandwich. Well, um, but like, <laughs> that's a righteous but, cause. I mean, well, it depends on what's in the sandwich. I mean, but Ivy especially is very much kind of where you're coming from. She's not animal rights. She's more environmental rights. Yeah. But she's very yeah. much like, yeah, I'm just going to kill all these terrible people. And she's presented as a villain, but also as a hero, mm-hmm. you know, in that I think we're supposed to be rooting for her. If occasionally, like, ah, maybe I wouldn't go quite as far as you're going. Um, but, but yeah, so I think there's a really interesting space to explore there about, like, what does it mean to be a villain? And, and that's a whole other topic that we're going to get into lots of discussions about. But, yeah, I really like that answer to that question. And Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I really love what you said about, you know, gradually convincing and not, not – uh-huh. It's just I'm not trying to convince you by saying you should do this. It's just I I do think like if you just live your life and do what you think is right, you know, like other people see that and Mm -hmm. think about it the same way you can make a movie that presents these questions and then people can think about it. And some people will change and some people won't. Most people won't. But some people are. We can never go on a tangent without leading to three other tangents. That's just the way we are. If you're still listening, you know that about us. Enjoy more tangents. Um, there's been a lot of discussion, especially because of what uh, Jonah Hill apparently said to his now ex-girlfriend. Uh, but putting that aside, but it led to larger discussions about the difference between setting a boundary for yourself versus setting a rule for someone else. Mm. And I think you are a great example of that because you have never asked me not to eat meat. You've never asked me to, um, you know, change the way I, what I do, but you have said that um, uh, you will not go to a restaurant that serves meat. Um, And so part of what that meant was that when I wanted to have, and you were often like, yeah, look, we can, you would often even just say like, I'm not even going to hang out with you. We can find ways to hang out that aren't over food, but just if I invited you to a restaurant that had meat, you wouldn't go. And so I, there were some times where I was like, yeah, let's hang out after dinner because I do really want to go to this place. And sometimes I was like, yeah, okay, let's go to some places that are not going to have the food that I love the most, but are still going to be good food. And went to a couple of places that I hated, but was happy with the company. <laughs> and then later, especially, you know, I was looking at more cuisines, but also it was just vegan food science has really increased. We're now at the place where we can consistently find things that we're both happy to eat at. And yeah. so I just wanted to highlight that as a great, great example of this idea of having a boundary versus then you have a boundary – that means that because I like interacting with you, I have to, ch- I do change, I choose to change my behavior. Yeah. But you've never made it a rule for me. Uh, and never like tried to veto like what I eat. It's just your boundary. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> um, yeah. And the, the guardians of the galaxy, I feel like I should have a better response to that. I- <laughs> <laughs> um, you could cut this. We can take out the whole thing. I'll no, no. I think it was great. I, I just felt my response was underwhelming. 
tad bit blown off, but that's okay. No, yeah. <laughs> um, let me, let me, this is a bit of a, a ridiculous sentence, but, um, you know, I mean, I, I appreciate you appreciating that, you know, and, and I appreciate the number of times that you've been like, yeah, I'll go to this place that I don't know if I'm going to like it or not, you know? And like, sometimes you didn't and, and sometimes you did, you know, I think, I think once we found like some vegetarian Indian places, Indian places like that, yeah. that was like a pretty good sweet spot, I think. Um, in terms of Guardians of the Galaxy 3, it, like, I won't get too deep into it, but, like, my main things are, like, one, if you thought that was super graphic, like, it, it, it wasn't super graphic. It was, Not like, quite. a little bit, I mean, it was, it confronted you with a lot of the horrors that humans do to, to non-human animals, but then gave you this, like, over-the-top villain that maybe you didn't have to feel so bad you know, yep, and then yep. completely undercut itself in the very last scene where Rocket and company are just like, oh, here's a bunch of animals. Oh, do you feel bad? Nah, not really. Let's just shoot them all. And I was just like, and it was fun. I was watching with Zen Madwoman and as, as she has said, she prefers to be called on these things. And she was just like, what was that? Like, yeah. why was that scene there? And it was, it reminded me of, you know, when we were talking about Loki and like Loki being like, oh, I'm bisexual. Now let me kiss a woman. So none of yeah. you have to have uncomfortable feelings about this. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so it's just like, just, I, you know, I feel like that is a movie that will make a lot of people think about things that they hadn't thought about before. And I really appreciate that. But like, oh, do we have to like undercut the message, you know? Yeah. And I, I that I would not put in. <laughs> no, I'll just yeah. I'll just put that out there. So, yeah. No, I think it's very fair. I think that was I think we I think we were critical of that at the time. Yes. I certainly felt oh, like I, I, think. I was like yeah. why did this happen? Because yeah. it was like that plus I, I, I it's funny. I'd even forgotten about how horrible that scene. I just thought you meant when like we see them like eating animals on sticks. Yeah, yeah, that like, too. That too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, but yeah, definitely yeah. good points. Here's the funny part. We'd gone so long that I thought we were in the Patreon section already. <laughs> That's why I kept saying, why don't we do it next time? Because then we'll be in the Patreon section. I know. I was so, like... New Jersey Jedi, thank you so much for asking the questions. I don't know Keep sending in questions. You can find all the ways to do so on theethicalpanda.com. Um, I am still on Twitter. Uh, eventually, I'm going to decide to get off Twitter uh, I don't have the energy and time, unfortunately, to create, like, five different accounts on the five different things <laughs> that are currently trying to replace Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, if one or two of them emerge, it's kind of the real dominant ones. Or if, you know, eventually I get kicked off Twitter, because I will keep calling it Twitter, and I will keep calling people cisgender. Uh, both of which I've heard are now becoming bannable offenses. They're not really, but, you know, who knows what'll happen. We'll see. But for now, you can find me on Facebook, email, Twitter, TikTok. Uh, you can technically find me on Instagram. I don't do much there, but if you send me a message on Instagram, you can find it. Pretty much search for The Ethical Panda in any of those places, but best thing is just go to theethicalpanda.com. Um, Paul, I know you can find as Zen Madman is more a uh, work in progress at the moment, in terms, but Paul has written a lot of great books in the past and is in the process of fermenting different ideas that will eventually come true. Uh, hopefully they will be more in the writing stories, not me trying to visit him in prison. Uh, but we will see. Um, oh, they won't uh, catch me. Yeah, Please. of course. Of course. Because <laughs> uh, we certainly don't have a recorded record that will be available to the public. That's know. not what I mean by catch. I mean physically. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> Apprehend. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so, but 
point is, send us all the feedback. Best way to support us is being a Patreon. If you go to our Patreon, you can support us. I think it's just like five bucks a month. And um, you get access to ad-free content. You get access to uh, additional content in our Patreon sections. And right now, especially 25% of all the money I get from Patreon is going to be donated to the educational fund. uh, Sorry, the um, entertainers fund, which is being used to help people affected by the strike, uh, both in the unions and also out of the unions. In terms of like the, you know, Paul's parents were not actors or, or directors, but like, your parents would probably be out of work right now. They they worked in other kinds of parts. They were in other industry. unions, yeah. Well, yeah, they could probably do commercials, but anyway, yeah, it's yeah. it affects it affects hard. a lot of people when you shut yeah. down a production. It affects a lot of people. The makeup people, the the caterers, yeah. the, and you know, and some of it some of it is like the official movie caterers. Some of it's probably I'm sure there's a pizza place next to some of these lots that just gets a ton of business sure. delivering pizzas to the studios. You know, all those are are suffering now. So. Yeah, 25% of it goes to that. So, uh, Patreon content about love triangles coming in just a second. But for everybody else, thank you all so much for listening. We have spoken.